Howdy, partners. You're listening to Conversations with Jacob, hosted by my good friend, Jacob Waller. Make sure to check out the podcast where podcasts are available and check out the video version on YouTube. You can follow us on social media. Facebook is Conversations with Jacob. Twitter is at CWJ Podcast. And you can visit our website, conversationswithjacobpodcast.weebly.com. Hey, you got a show idea? Maybe a guest suggestion? Email us at conversationswithjacob at gmail.com. Now, here's your host, Jacob Waller. What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Conversations with Jacob. Today we got a good episode for you, and we're talking true crimes with Robert uh, Riggs. But before we get to Robert, I was going to talk about the podcast for a second. And you can follow us on social media, facebook.com slash conversations with Jacob on YT, and Twitter is CWJ Podcast. Our podcast which our podcast is available on iHeartRadio, uh, TuneIn, Spotify, Pandora, and over 20 different podcasts and sites. And, and we're broadcasted in France, we're in UK, and we're in Ireland, and about uh, about half in the United States. Um, and you can also check us check out the video version of this podcast on YouTube. If you got a question, a guest suggestion, just want to say hi, you can email us conversations with Jacob at gmail.com and our website is conversations with Jacob Podcast dot weebly dot com. You can find upcoming guests, past guests, and also all the episodes on there. So and joining me this week on uh his edition of Conversations with Jacob is Mr. Robert Ridge, who is host of a of the podcast called True Reporter Podcast and also is on Fox Nations. So so Robert and welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. And the the podcast for your listeners is True Crime Reporter. We're everywhere, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, just like you. Uh, and we have a large audience in Australia. They love they love crime in Texas down there. <laughs> there you go. Um, so and so and how did you, uh, I guess, kind of get into like the crime stuff? Well, I was a, a television reporter for three decades. And uh, kind of in the middle of that career, till, till the end, um, it became a big focus of my reporting. I, I had been in Washington, D.C., covering the uh, President Reagan and George H.W. Bush, their White House and the Pentagon and everything else. Came back to Texas, to Austin, the state capital, and uh, started nosing around into why there were so many um early releases from prison of inmates, and they were ending up in these horrific crimes, especially in Houston. It was an epidemic. And I discovered uh, paroles were being sold. Uh, the parole Part of the parole board was corrupt. Uh, part of the other criminal justice system was corrupt. And that really got me on the track. And so I, I did that. I, that investigation took about 10 years of my life. It, it, it evolved into reporting on terrorism. Uh, I was with the lead unit during the invasion of Iraq. I was an embedded reporter for the CBS station group. And, uh, you know, just kind of kept on. 
And then I kind of brought it all of this back in 2020. I started a podcast and I said I was really dusting off my old reporter's notebooks. I'd kept many, many of them. And I was going to call my old law enforcement sources and, and sources I knew that couldn't t- talk on the record back then, but could talk now because they're retired. And that's kind of how it came back to life. How about that? Now, um, when you talk about the like the prison being corrupt and the government being corrupt, do you think that that's still a thing today? There's kind of a, in one sense, I say a different kind of corruption, not the corruption where there was money under the table back in those days. There was also political, a form of political corruption in those days. Um, Texas had been in trouble with a federal judge and had been under federal orders for prison overcrowding. And they had defied the federal judge for oh, over 10 years. And the irony was the all of the lawmakers, both sides of the aisle, would run on. They were tough on crime, and they were passing much tougher laws. But they refused to spend any money to build prisons to hold all these additional offenders in. So they got in trouble with this federal judge and a, uh, a re- administration that wanted to spare itself of uh, embarrassment, political controversy of having a judge take over the prison system, decided that, well, we'll start releasing inmates in the dead of night and not tell anybody. And they were releasing 150 inmates a day, wow. a day. And Later, uh, behind my reporting, there were some hearings, and a, and a parole board member admitted that they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. They were down to letting the worst of the worst go. And uh, one of the things I uncovered was that they had released 68, it turned out to be 85, but 68 former death row inmates. That just sent a shockwave through the state when I reported that. Wow. So, and what was done about that? Well, the poster boy uh, for this was a serial killer named Kenneth McDuff. And McDuff is the, is the uh, subject of a five-part documentary that I've got on Fox Nation called Freed to Kill, appropriately named because he'd already been in for a random murder of three t- innocent teenagers that he just targeted. They were parked at a football field after hours and uh, got the death penalty. The death penalty was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1972 in a Georgia case. So across the nation, all of the uh, men, women on death row, their death sentences were commuted to life, which meant, meant under many systems that someday they'd be eligible for parole. Well, who would imagine you would ever let any of these people out, and I discovered they had. And, again, some of it was payoffs. There were payoffs going on, and some of it was this other thing to relieve crowding that nobody was being told about. And what was happening, that we, we just had an epidemic of violent crime, and starting in 88 up to 91, 92, when I started exposing this across the state, and it was because they let everybody out on early release, many who should never even gotten out. Uh, Kenneth McDuff, 
the allegations, there was a cloud of allegations of bribery and corruption around his release. But the day after he walked out of prison, he started killing again. We'll never know how many women he killed. He killed prostitutes. He killed convenience store clerks. Uh, one of the more notorious murders was that at Christmas time in Austin, Texas, there was a young, uh, professional, um, and she was w- washing her car at a car wash and he and accomplice ab- abducted her in plain sight on a busy street, never seen alive again. And so, um, I, during this investigation discovered he was out. And that, uh, you know, shouldn't have, really shouldn't have been out the stuff going on. And there were hearings. There were hearings in the state Senate by a, a senator named Ted Lyon. Lyon was a real firebrand in those days. And he and I were kind of really at that time the only ones concerned and in digging into what, why were the, what was the crime rate going through the roof? And so he had hearings and he had, he was calling up parole board members who had voted to release McDuff. They had lousy, flim-flam reasons for doing it. You could just tell <laughs> there was something else going on. Well, ironically, as those hearings are going on, Kenneth McDuff is cruising blocks within the Capitol looking for young women uh, and young girls to abduct. Wow. Yeah. I, I do know and how many people he killed. We know there were upwards of 15 he uh, he got sentenced to death for two, which is what unheard of in Texas. He's the only man in Texas history to receive three death sentences. Wow! And so they first they tried him for a a young pregnant mother of two that was a convenience store clerk in Waco, Texas, on the interstate, and they tried him for her first, and that had really been a high profile case because there was a there was a, a hunt for where is this woman? And they did, they found her body months later in a uh, kind of a abandoned quarry that was flooded up near Dallas, about 60 miles from Waco. And then so they got the conviction there. And then uh, Austin prosecutors tried him in Austin for the young woman abducted from the car wash. And it was literally they they wanted to make sure they had an in, you know the prosecutor said I'm 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 going to get an insurance policy this guy is not going to come out again and so shortly before he was executed in 1999 um the original investigators were able to get um him to tell them where three of the victims bodies were and they gave the gave peace to their families but there are many, many others. We'll never know. Oh, wow. Yeah, we'll never now, know. Uh, oh, sorry. Was I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, now, you know, back then, you know, cases didn't get soft, you know, right there on the spot. Do you think now in 2023 that they can solve cases much quicker? Well, there's a new development in technology, and that's called a Forensic Investigative Genetic Genealogy. I've done a series of stories on the podcast, really kind of on True Crime Reporter, taking you back to your biology class in, in high school. I wasn't really good at mine in college. I wish I'd been better now. Uh, but 
there, it, it, it's a combination. It's the advances in DNA testing and DNA and advances in technology. So there is a firm in Houston and there's some others in the, in the United States that have this cutting edge technology where they can get a microscopic sample of blood or that evidence or semen from a uh, old case and um, analyze it, identify the DNA, and then what they're doing uh, on some of the uh, social genealogy sites, they run it against the database, and they find a distant relative. They find someone on the family tree of that DNA. Then cold case detectives have a whole new avenue to investigate doesn't solve the case, but it gives them a hot new lead. And so there was a case here um, in Dallas, in, well, in Fort Worth, of a young girl who was abducted on a Valentine's Day dance coming out. Her her uh, date was pistol-whipped, and she just vanished. They found her body. She'd been raped and murdered, but nothing. Case went cold, and 47 years later, about a year ago, they solved that case using this technology, got the offender. He's in prison now. He'll be in prison for the rest of his life. And um, so it's pretty remarkable. It's happening across the country where these cases they once thought were not solvable are solvable because of the advance of technology. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I think you're seeing that used in that Idaho University murder case as well. Um there are some departments now trying to use it in active cases where they don't really have a good lead and and see what they get. There, there's a, there was a case with the Texas Rangers here that's working its way through the court system that a young teacher was murdered, you know, raped and found left in a bathtub. This is good Lord. This is uh, 1972. Oh, wow. They pulled out the evidence that had been in storage from the cold case, tested it. And uh, they uh, arrested a guy that had been a groom in her wedding. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but there are, God, there are, you know, they're like, the the number I've gotten is around upwards of 200,000 plus cold cases across the country. So I've. I just finished a two-part series of the homicide detective who had been with a special agent with NCS, the television show NCIS, but it's Naval Criminal Investigative Service. And, you know, he, I mean, he said literally for years, people are getting away with murder. And, well, it's becoming harder and harder to do that. Um, now, unfortunately, to try to do something about all this backlog of cold cases is expensive. This testing is a is expensive and the resources aren't there to do it. The federal government has started pumping in some stuff. Um, so there's, you know, there's hope. I know this for the families that get an answer. It really mean it really means a lot. It just that they just kind of know uh, that someone has been brought to justice. Now, speaking of getting away with murder, uh, do you know the case of Emmett Till? Yes. Yeah, I'm familiar. Uh, yeah. So so what is your thoughts on that uh, whole situation? I'm not that familiar with it. I mean, it's, it's horrible what happened. 
Uh, so I don't know if, if they have used, uh, any of these, the sophisticated technology in it. Um, and you know, we're, uh, we're working on a, a development, a concept for a television show to, uh, go do some of these cases that, and, and cases that have been sort of controversial and, you know, go find, try to, the who done it, try to go find who did it. Um, and the, um, the DNA doesn't, it doesn't solve cold cases alone. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, evidence to be examined. And in what's happened to me, these cases, the detectives had a lot on their plate and they just never got as far as they could go. Um, I've got a really great two part series that's just been on the last couple of weeks with, uh, Retired special agent, he's still working, named Joe Kennedy that was with NCIS. And he started the first federal cold case unit at NCIS. Just fascinating. But he's got, he's really an interesting guy. He's got a whole approach that's really different from a lot the way American and European homicide investigators approach cases. You know, they're, they're often, they just start with motive, you know, who might have had a motive. He's really super focused on evidence and building from evidence. And so when he goes into these cold cases and he works with a group of retired investigators now who have a nonprofit and they go help small departments and communities that don't have their knowledge and resources and, you know, look at their cold cases. And one of the things he's found, and I've seen this in other cases, is that, good Lord, 90%, 95% of the time, the suspect's name and he's been looked at is in the cold case file. Uh, in the case I told you about in Fort Worth of the, the young woman, the guy they got, he was on the list of original suspects. Wow. And they just never, uh, got, had, had the evidence, but now they did with the DNA. Now, and what is your thoughts on the Watergate scandal? Well, uh, you know, I worked for the member of Congress that started the first Watergate investigation. Um, his name was Congressman Wright Pavin. He's long since deceased. He was the ch- chairman of the House Banking Committee. Uh, he was uh, really always challenging the powerful financial interest in the co- country, the banks and everything else, uh, was a, a champion of lower interest rates. Uh, he was really, really was an interesting man. And it really quickly came out that the Watergate burglars had all of this cash. And so Mr. Pablo was like, well, where'd that cash come from? Where, where? And so we, uh, we, uh, the investigators and all began tracking the cash. And it, there's an old adage. I used it as a journalist, follow the money, just follow the money. And they did that. And it led to the uh, committee to reelect the president. Uh, it had come out of slush funds. And at that point, you know, I was fresh out of college, out of Texas A&M. I had a degree in architecture and building construction, but I just kind of had this political bug and interest. But I was a gopher just doing uh, research. And in those days, you didn't have the, you didn't have the internet. 
you literally had to go to a federal agency or the Library of Congress, depending on what you're looking for, and dig through records. And I, I mean, I, I lived in the Library of Congress. And back in the back of the place, they had the card files. Maybe you, I know when I was in high school and college, they had, it was the Dewey Decimal System. I was, this will ring a bell with some people. And, you know, you had to f- go through card files. There were 22,000 card file drawers in the place. I mean, it was just, oh. So you you had to go find it, and I, I mean, I'll give you a kind of comparison to today. You would want to get like an 8K uh, that's filed by corporations or 10Ks. It would give you information about the companies and who gets paid what and that sort of thing from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Today, I'd get that online literally in seconds. In those days, I had to go to the SEC headquarters in Washington, into the archives where there was file cabinet after file cabinet. I mean, in those days, some of those places, um, if you remember that closing scene of the Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Ark is in this warehouse of hundreds of boxes and all, well, these agencies were kind of like that in those days when everything was on paper. And so you'd be in there digging through that stuff. So, you know, I might spend a half a day trying to get something that today, I, as a reporter, I'd get in seconds. So that that's really changed. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, today, um, you know, there's the Open Records Act, but particularly the federal government, many of these agencies, you know, they, they forget, I think they have forgotten that it's the government of the people and they fight. Everybody, not just the press, everybody, left and right, put up barriers to try to getting what should be public documents. Um, you know, because a lot of it's just about how's your tax dollars being spent. So you know they'll they'll throw up obstacles that there's a there's a enormous fee for searching and getting getting these out of the system, and which I have always believed was just a um, an excuse, a roadblock to try to keep from giving it to you. And if they really want, and I'm going through a roadblock right now of uh, where now, you know, they've, they've sent it over to the attorney general for a review. Again, it's just stalling. It's just, it's just a large stalling tactic. Make you try to hire a lawyer to, you know, then you, and you don't have the money to spend on the fees. So yeah, it's pretty, can be discouraging. And then there's some agencies that are great. Yeah, now you're from Texas, so I gotta throw this question out to you. Do, uh, do, and do you think that the JFK assassination was like a cover up or if it was done by more than one person? Everything I've seen points to Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, but, you know, in conspiracy theories, it's just hard to believe that one individual could pull off what they did. But I, my mind's open, you know. I there there have been a lot of very interesting questions raised, and the um, the it's funny you touched on this the um, the case that we're a cold case we're thinking about digging into has links to all of that, and so uh, I'm trying to put together a group of cold case detectives to go look into a murder that was never solved that is distantly related to all of that. 
Uh, and there have been conspiracy theories around it. And I've been like, look, I've, I've got all these ties to some of the best investigators in the world. Let's, let's go do it. Let's do a television show around it. And you can watch us dig and let's see what we find. Yeah. Now, um, now you've covered, uh, you know, about everything up to guess when you podcast. Uh, what is your take on Charles Manson? Oh, was he was, you know, you know, how was he sent these people out to kill? Uh, he think that he was kind of, uh, I was, I guess, guilty in that because he never killed no one. Well, Bugliosi, and if any, if anyone really loves true crime and all, I suggest you got to read Bugliosi, the prosecutor's book, Helter Skelter. It's amazing. Just amazing book by how, you know, police had missed evidence and everything. But he really gets into it how the, the, Largely women around him and some men were all, they were these lost souls just looking for a purpose in life. And suddenly he, he filled it with his crazy, um, psychodrama and, you know, manipulate them. But he was giving orders, you know, he was setting them, setting them loose. Um, and you know, one of the, uh, one of the women that followed him, she just recently got released from prison in California. So it's a, it's, it's, you know, and then you had Squeaky Fromm, one of his followers. She was the one that carved a, the cross in her forehead during his trial. And you know, then she later tried to assassinate Gerald Ford when he was president. So he really, he really turned some bad seeds loose. But it did oh, yeah. seem there were there were these these two women that were involved. It seemed they had remade their lives and all. Um, I of my personal belief, I thought they should have stayed in prison because they t- they took some people's lives and you know there's got to be some con- long term consequences for that. Uh, what is your thoughts on uh, John Wayne Gacy? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, it's cases like that that just make all of this so interesting. You know, of what, what, what makes those people tick? You know, how, how, how do they come? I mean, they do, they commit the unthinkable. I mean, look at Dahmer. Unthinkable stuff. But it does fascinate all of us. Um, you know, I'm, I've got a lot, my audience is probably 75% women, uh, and I've got a rest men, which is unusual. Usually these things are all women. Men are, uh, find appeal in our podcast because they're police procedurals too. You will hear, unlike most podcasts, you'll hear the actual detectives, U.S. Marshals, FBI agents, fugitive hunters that were involved in the case. You'll hear them. And so, the men, men like to hear how they solve it, and they like to hear justice was done. Women tend to want to try to understand more about the why, what made them tick. Is uh, um, do I know someone like this? Am I standing in the checkout line at the grocery store? Uh, am I gassing up my car at a gas and go? And there's somebody at the next pump like this, and. So that's, that's their fascination. I do, I, my personally, it's, it's, um, 
I've always found it very interesting uh, as a reporter, uh, probably very much like the, the police. I enjoyed the hunt of, of, you know, who done it, oh, how, yeah. when, where, who, the who done it part of it. Yeah. Now, um, T- and why do you think that these people do what they do? Is it like drugs involved or is it just like an obsession? Or I'll put your thoughts on it. Everything I've seen, we'll never really know. Right. We, yeah. we really will never know the why. I can tell you they're all very, if you really dig in. And t- and I've talked to them on death row and uh, uh, face-to-face. I've covered them in court, talked to them after court. And they're all different. And you, you know, um, uh, Let's take Kenneth McDuff, the serial killer. He was a, a very rare killer. It's it's he's an it's an unusual one. I like to tell people he's probably one of the worst serial killers in the history of the U.S. that you've never heard of. And there were a number of reasons why there were other huge media events that occurred that kind of overshadowed what he had done. But uh, his mother was this domineering, loud mouth. A woman that kind of fits the stereotype of any serial killer's mother, but um, she always was. Kenneth could do no wrong, and she, uh, in this small town in Texas, she had become known as the Pistol Packing Mama because there'd been a few occasions where he had been disciplined at school. Uh, once he'd been put off the school bus for raising Cain on the school bus, and they just put him off. And she showed up next day at, to the school bus driver at the school bus with a revolver threatening him. And she was feared around town because of all this. She always had a revolver in her purse, seemed half crazy, mean, really mean. And she became known as the pistol packing mama. When there was a, there ended up being a, a nationwide manhunt for him, led by the U.S. Marshals. And um, kind of the leader of the task force, who was known as one of the best fugitive hunters and toughest fugitive hunters uh, in the Marshal Service, and that's what they specialize in. I mean, he'd gone into to Panama to get Noriega and stuff when we invaded. I mean, is it tough? He told me that she was one of the toughest, hard-hearted, uh, people he'd ever run into in his career and meanest, meanest. And, uh, uh, so he had that going. He had a father who everybody around town thought was, you know, really just kind of a quiet guy and they felt sorry for him that he was married to this woman. But at home, he was very, very, he was abusive, according to family members, ab- abusive to some of the, women in the family, and other people. But Kenneth was always on a pedestal. He would take Kenneth down to the soda fountain and buy him ice cream and make all of his siblings sit and watch him eat it. So, you know, uh, oftentimes you think it's, you know, the the serial killer was abused in their childhood or something. In this case, he was uh, just endowed with every privilege you could get, you know. Uh, so, 
you know, the other thing on on him, we know that very young, he started torturing and killing animals. That's that's a sign. That's a sign of them. And then when I was uh, working on him, when he was uh, doing was doing my investigative series, and he was still out, and the marshals and everybody are after him. Um, Roy Hazelwood, uh, one of the original behavioral scientists, FBI agents at the Behavioral Science Unit, specialized in uh, uh, sexual homicides and murders. And he told me, he said, listen, I'm going to tell you, this guy is what we I call the great white shark of serial killers. He's a sadistic sexual serial killer. It's more important to him to sexually abuse and torture and inflict pain on his victims. That's what he that's what he's all about. He said they're they're the hardest to catch, good at tra- covering their tracks. And uh in 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 the McDuff case, we had something really unusual that you don't really ever see happen. He had an accomplice, he had an accomplice in other cases. And I always my theory always was that he had an accomplice because he wanted to show off uh, you know, murder was theater art for Kenneth McDuff. And so you had an accomplice who flipped and uh, gave a long, long confession statement describing what McDuff had done, every detail to the abduction and final death of the young woman in Austin. And it was horrific. It was the most horrific things I'd ever read. I thought as a reporter and being in war zones, I'd seen some awful stuff. But when you read what he did to that tiny, petite woman, by the way, he was a big guy. Um, you know, I, I just had the thought she must have been begging to die. God, please take me, you know, the suffering for. I. So he would take his victims to the point of death, bring them back, rape, sodomize them more and torture them more, burn them. Uh, with cigarettes on their on their genitals, uh, and then finally he had a phrase he would use. He when he finally was finished, he'd say, "I'm going to use her up." That was his phrase, and then he'd one blow break their neck, something like that. But he was a big man. He had pumped iron in prison. Uh, and what really struck you was the size of his hands. I mean, his hand, one hand of his was the size of two of mine. They were massive in, and so big that when the marshals got him, normal handcuffs wouldn't go on him. They had to put leg irons on his wrist. And so he was known for the way he would snatch women. He would one-handed grab them by the throat and lift them off the ground. And he had a preferential victim. He liked petite brunettes, you know, five feet or less, 90 pounds that he can control. And, you know, all the women that we knew of, they fit They fit that to the T. Wow. Now, um, with your time doing reporting and investigative, and do you get like, I'll say like a favorite case? Well, I have to say during my, I mean, there were, I had so many high points in my career I would say that this case uh, and the investigation of the prison system, which went on for nearly 10 years, was a, really a high point of my career. Um, I did other things that were government corruption and some people went to the federal penitentiary that were uh, 
members of the city council and state legislature in Texas behind the reporting. But that was it. I mean, it, it did, the to me, the one satisfying thing, it brought huge reforms to the prison system. And, um, and McDuff became the poster boy for change. And they passed the first reforms of the criminal justice code in, oh, more than a quarter century. And they were called the McDuff Laws in the legislature, and his name was uttered. And so, um, you know, one of the things we got out of it was a uh, option to the death penalty, which was uh, capital murder, life without parole. You'd never get out. And so uh makes it a lot easier that you don't have all these uh, appeals forever. Um, and, you know, many of the guys that are, called they take that and so then we had the massive prison building campaign by governor ann richards this she inherited this scandal when she came in and she didn't believe me governor richards you know she's kind of a liberal democrat she didn't come in with a plan to build massive numbers of prisons but she had to because it was just such a scandal of what was going on so that was uh, other high points um, you know, I was embedded with the lead unit during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. The unit suffered the first casualties of the war. Um, you know, that was, that was, that was right up there. But there have been many, many other stories. I, I was, I, you know, I covered everything from the Oklahoma City bombing to, um, um, all kinds of terrorism overseas, terrorist groups. The um, and you know some plain vanilla feature stories of interesting characters at times. The White House with President Reagan, George H. W. Bush, um, Capitol Hill. Uh, back in the days when it there wasn't a kind of a blood sport war going on between the two parties when they actually spoke to each other and tried to work together. Um, that was fun. I enjoyed doing that. Um, the and I really, what I, re- I also really enjoyed covering military stories. I went to A&M, which was, you know, had been a military school. I followed my uncle there, who I'm named after. He went there in World War II. His class, it was all ROTC. He got called to World War II. So our entire class his junior year. So I, and then I'd been on a defense committee in Congress working the stuff. You went to the military schools as part of it. So it was just kind of a, an interest and a passion. And during President Reagan, you know, he really took on the Soviets and beat them down. And we had, you know, he had the 600 ship Navy, Star Wars, all of that. So, you know, I did, I did documentaries on aircraft carriers, you know, back, back, uh, before, before Top Gun and, uh, uh, battleships. Uh, was the first reporter ever allowed to go to sea on the attack submarine Dallas. That was a real thrill. That was, that was, uh, you know, it's one of the more, uh, secret parts of our military of what they do. And I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get it done. But I had been acquainted in Washington with Tom Clancy, the great novelist of, you know, Hunt for Red October. And, you know, you still see his work on television today with Jack Ryan on 
Amazon and stuff. And I knew I'd become acquainted with Clancy just before he was getting famous. And um, so to get on the attack submarine Dallas, which I'm from Texas, it's Dallas, and I knew Clancy, and it was this, it was the a character in Hunt for Red October. That was a lot of fun. That was really interesting. So, you know, you used to, I used to sort of keep it a secret of, I don't want my bosses, my news bosses to know just how much fun I'm having out here. Um, but I feel, unfortunately, you know, the, 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 the craft and the industry has dramatically changed. Uh, if I was there today, there's no way they would have sent me to Iraq. Uh, they wouldn't want to spend the money. They're, they're, you know, they're bleeding money. They, the audience has gone to the internet and other places. Um, so, uh, I feel fortunate that it was kind of in the, it was kind of the golden age of television news that I got to experience. Now, and what is your thoughts on politics and the crime that's going around it now, especially with the thing going on with uh, President Trump? Well, um, I had a top secret security clearance and I'm, I, when I heard he he'd taken all of those files, I was like, "What's what is up with that?" I mean, I'm like, that 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 really struck me. So, you know, it's hey, it's a it's a it's a jury and a judicial system to sort this out. Uh, I, you know, I don't know the full details of the case, no, I, but on the other hand. I was bothered that Hillary Clinton got a free, I felt a free pass because um, and the thing that really jumped out at me is when she said uh, that she didn't know what the uh, nomenclature was on the documents for security. I was like, get out of here. It's the first thing you you're told in your school on that, you know, and you're, You've become Secretary of State. You don't know this stuff. You come on, you know, everybody, you knew it. Everybody knew it. And I was like, and they bought that. The other, there was another thing that really bothered me about that case is that, um, you know, that it was like this closed door interview. I mean, the, the way they handled that talking to her, like it was a conversation. That bothered me too. I mean, you, I don't, you don't find other rare you'd ever see defendants or potential defendants, you know, certainly targets of an investigation given that. So I've, I've always, so that's always left a bad taste in my mouth too. But, you know, I, I think Trump was rather stupid taking all those files. I, I don't, I don't know if he intended to write a book or something like that. And of course, you know, you got to go through big approval process. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Uh, the other thing on Trump, I'll, frankly, I was bothered by was the, uh, the, uh, the payoffs to the porn star and stuff. I just, I guess I'm, I guess I'm an old fashioned Puritan. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of sticking with the White House and presidents, and what is your thoughts uh, when they found cocaine in the White House? Well, yeah. So I worked – I've been around the White House as a congressional staffer years ago. I 
They've been there since. Um, and I, you know, I covered it was in that White House press room and all. And I've known Secret Service agents. And I find it highly implausible <laughs> that with all the security in that place and cameras, that, you know, they didn't know, you know. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know in the security system if you, if they have any drug detection devices. I would have thought they, they did because, um, they have devices that will sense radioactive material. There have been visitors, you know, you can contact your Congress member's office and get a pass, uh, to get the White House tour. And, you know, people line up and everything. It's a deal. It's hard. It's, you know, it's a waiting list. But I've heard of people getting pulled out of the line because the, uh, the sensor went off. And it's turned out some people had a, uh, um, you know, a item in their bloodstream where they were being treated for cancer or something. And it, you know, had radioactivity coming off of it. So, they, you know, if they got the sensors to do that, surely, surely, you know, they've got, and, you know, they, they've got canines and all. I, I, boy, I, this is just not squared with me. Yeah. 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 I'm like, and, 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 you know, what a breach of security. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then you, you, I would think you'd be turning over every desk in the place and with, and with all the technology for testing. So I, I just don't, it doesn't pass a smell test with Robert it really doesn't. Wow. That's crazy. So, um, uh, I've reached the end of my questions and you want to tell people again about your podcast. Sure. The podcast is true crime reporter. Uh, we're on all of the podcast channels. We have some stuff, and I've got a lot of stuff, news stories from my career on YouTube. Uh, again, in there is Robert Riggs, True Crime Reporter on YouTube. And um, we typically turn a, a an episode of every week. Uh, we're working on some more television shows, documentaries, that I, that I think people will find very interesting. Uh, two of them involve the legendary Texas Rangers. You, They're the oldest continuous serving law enforcement organization in North America, in most of the world. Uh, this year is their 200th anniversary, their bicentennial. They've been around since 1823. Um, they, it's, they're kind of a mythical status. Um, it, you can't judge them by Walker, Texas Ranger, the old television show. They're, they're different, but they're, they're experts in homicide. And also government corruption, but, and, and kidnappings, but big time on homicide. And their mission is this, is that if a small town police department or a rural small area sheriff has got a very difficult murder case, they, um, can help it, the sheriff or police, they have to be called in. And they're, listen, they're called in constantly everywhere, but they're called in to help because 
of their expertise, their training, their knowledge, and their technology. They have got amazing technology and a crime lab behind them. So the last thing you want is a Texas Ranger on your trail because uh, they work as a group. You know, one, one five rangers will go help another ranger on a difficult case. They're smart. They're good. In, they're great interrogators. Uh, and they stay in the background. You don't really ever hear much about them. And that's part of the DNA. Um, they never want to take credit where they should take credit because the local uh, sheriff or police chief who's called them in, he stand, to announce the case has been solved. He's the one that does it at the podium. The Rangers in the background. They're, they're very, they're modest in that we're just here to help. But I will say this, knowing them, and I know a lot of them, um, some are just bigger than life. They are really, really interesting. There's a, there's a saying I heard the former, uh, head of the Rangers say, and he later was the number two person in the Texas Department of Public Safety. I'll get I'll, a quick lesson here. We have in Texas, uh, it's called DPS here, Department of Public Safety, Texas Department of Public Safety, but under it, we have the state troopers. Uh, we have the troopers who uh, do the truck um, enforcement of safety and everything. Do a range of, they do a range of things, the troopers. They run the driver's license agencies of, you know, getting your driver's license. Big gamut. And under there, that's DPS. And also on a subcategory of DPS are the rangers. You have to have been a serving DPS officer for a number of years before you can even apply to become a ranger. And there's a lot of applications and there's a lot of rejections. It's, I, you know, it's, it's, I would dare say it's, it's the selection process is poorly, probably more selective than becoming a Navy SEAL. You really have to be at the top of your game and have had an outstanding career as a trooper. Now, many troopers, they get involved in solving crimes. They're not just handing out tickets. They're, it's a different type deal. And, you know, the Rangers have their own SWAT team and all sorts of stuff that they do. Uh, and so does DPS. So, um, there's a saying that if you're a Ranger, you should be able to walk into a cafe in East Texas, small town, Without your hat, your cowboy hat on, without your gun belt, without your cowboy boots, and without they have a distinctive badge made out of the Cinco Peso from Mexico. Uh, and people should know you're a ranger, that there's something about you. And I've seen it. There is a, there is kind of an aura. And I've seen cases of fugitives that the moment they heard there was a ranger outside that had come, they give up like, oh, I don't want trouble from a ranger. So there, it really is interesting. I like to say of them, you might on a case in out in the West, you might find them on a on the horse in the morning and on their computer a laptop in the afternoon, you know, go searching DNA databases, going through case files, that sort of stuff. It's a, it's a very interesting group. So I've got two really, really interesting cases that we're trying to develop for television. So you'll see them bigger. You'll see them bigger than life. 
Oh, absolutely. Now, um, I have to end up every episode with all my guests. I would always ask them if they got any closing thoughts. And so, do you get any closing thoughts? I do. And this comes from a group of professional women I was talking to the other day. And they said to me, I, as a woman in a big city in America traveling on business, I don't feel safe anymore. I'm afraid. I am afraid. I'm not afraid if I'm overseas, but I'm afraid here. And they have a right to be afraid. There has been a um, loosening of bail. And in many cities, the uh, uh, gun crime offenders, multi, uh, repeat offenders, repeat violent offenders are being shown the door. They're, they're, uh, some are walking out on what are called PC or personal recognizance bonds which are basically, oh, I promise to come back. And so we're seeing a whole outbreak in Texas of crimes around the state committed by people that are out on bail. Um, we even have capital murder defendants out on bail. Um, some of the prosecutors have said, oh, they've got electronic monitor on. Well, he, folks, here's the, here's the bad news. There's nobody sitting there waiting to what when the monitor goes off to say, okay, we got to send the police out right away. We got to find now it doesn't happen. So be careful, be careful. I, I know, uh, um, I'm acquainted with a Navy SEAL and there is a former, um, uh, special forces, uh, operator who worked for the CIA in Afghanistan and Iraq named Mark, uh, Glover. And he's got a company called Fieldcraft Survival. It really is kind of tapping into the sphere with training. But I'm bringing this up because the T-shirt that they can't keep on the shelf says you are on your own. And, indeed, I, I talk to law enforcement all day, every day. You are on your own because with the defund the police movement, uh, many, many officers retired. The ranks haven't been filled. People don't want to go to work for the police because they get harassed and they've been kind of painted with a broad brush. That's not to say that incidents like George Floyd weren't wrong. They were. Um, but um, policing around the country has kind of been decimated. And so I've been talking to women's groups about um I know many of you are afraid, you know, you don't want to carry a concealed weapon and that sort of stuff. But let me arm you with some intellect, smart thinking, you know, about how not to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, how to size up the guy at the bars, any or even at business that's trying to court you that could be a psychopath. Just arming with information because there is a naivete. And I try to stress to people, and it's kind of my last word. There is Old Testament evil in the world. There are intellectuals that laugh at me when I say that, but I have sat across from them on death row and other places and heard their stories and talked to them, and I'm telling you, it's real. How about that? Hello, Robert. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast uh, to talk about true crime, which I really enjoyed. I'm sure my viewers has too. Yeah, true crime reporter. Uh, I'm in all the podcast channels. You can go to truecrimereporter.com and see what all is there. And, uh, and sign up for our newsletter because we've got some interesting things coming for the people that are signing up for the newsletter that I think everybody will enjoy reading. 
Oh, absolutely. Which absolutely. But anyways, uh, this has been an episode of Conversations with Jacob. And tune in next week for another episode. Until then, be safe. God bless. And we'll catch you then.